Good morning. I have a very significant uh, familial announcement to make. I just want you to know before Lynn stands up here later and takes credit for it, that the first person to get my grandson to laugh ever, <laughs> me. And there's video evidence, so. Uh, we are today, we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 9. Uh, it, is, it is a chapter that is, it has lots of great things to say, especially at the end. But there's a thing about it that we, it, it's hard to remember um, that to the first century Jewish Christians, having left the temple worship, the sacrificial system, everything that they knew um, had been completed, had been changed because of the person of Jesus Christ and his, his sacrifice on the cross, his descension into hell, his, us, his resurrection from the dead, and his ascension to the Father. And, and, and so when we read this, we're like, yeah, 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 yeah. Let's keep going, get to the Jesus stuff. But, but keep in mind that these people had, they had all of that their whole lives, their whole family system, their whole economical system, the whole way they related to the world was kind of us, the Jewish people, against our oppressors, Rome. Um, and there were, the, there were two types of people in the world. There were Jewish people and the goyim, the non-Jewish people. So these Hebrews had become Christians, but after a few years started missing what, what they had lost. They started missing what they had come from. And so they started returning to that sacrificial system. And the, the, the author of Hebrews is saying, don't settle, don't settle. Don't settle for second best because we've, this whole book is, is a book of better things. Jesus is better than Moses. He's better than the priesthood. And here, he's better than the temple. And so we talked a couple of weeks ago uh, when we on the Melchizedek Sunday when we were talking about that very confusing passage. And I talked to you about a thing, uh, an academic term called typology. And the way, uh, so Melchizedek was a type of Christ. It doesn't mean he was a kind of Christ, like he's, he's like a little Christ. It's that he points toward Christ. And the illustration we gave you was we showed you a picture, uh, a, a topographical map of Israel. And Israel, um, when you look at that topographical map, you can understand what the, the land of Israel, you can see where the elevations are, you can see where the cities are, you can see where the seas are. But the map is a map of Israel. It represents Israel, but it's not Israel. Melchizedek was a type of Christ, but he's not a Christ. The temple on earth is a type of the temple that is heaven. It represents on earth what is true in heaven. And so when Jesus, when Jesus died, he he crossed through the curtain to the Holy of Holies, the most holy place, but that curtain was death, and the most holy place is heaven. So God gave us that sacrificial system in that temple to represent what's true in heaven. That's what the author is getting at. So when we read through this, keep that in mind. He's describing what was, and then he, he, he shows that Jesus is, even, is an even greater sacrifice, and he didn't, he didn't do things with, with, with blood of, the blood of goats. He did things with his own blood, and he crossed into the true temple. So I'm going to pray. We'll read through this, and I hope to encourage you today with the sense of if you have indeed received forgiveness, 
you are indeed forgiven forever. Let's pray together. Lord, this is, it, it can be kind of hard for us because it's a context that we don't live in. When people are trying to go back to a system that we have almost no knowledge of. But Lord, we are people who tend to go back to the way we like things, to go back to what brings us comfort, to go back to the idea that if I'm good, God has to love me, to, to, to go back toward works, to go back toward our cultural norms. Lord, we ask you to speak to us, to show us what are the better things, who is the better sacrifice, and what, how we benefit from that so that we can be of benefit to you in your kingdom. So this is your message for us, not my message for them. So stand in my shoes, give me your thoughts, and speak with my mouth so that we hear only what you want us to hear. We see only what you want us to see, and we receive only what you want us to receive. We pray this in the name of Jesus, through the power of your Spirit, for the glory of God our Father. Amen. Okay, it's a pretty long chapter, and I've read through it dozens of times, so I hope that I can, I can go through it in a way that feels like it's not someone from up front just reading a long chapter, but that there's some passion and meaning to it. So it starts off like this. Now, the first covenant had regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary, a tabernacle. Now, he's talking specifically about the tabernacle of Moses when they were wandering around in the desert. He's not talking yet about the temple itself, but the tabernacle was a representative of the temple, and the temple, both of them, were representatives of the temple, the, the, the true worship of God, which is in heaven. A tabernacle was set up in the first uh, in its first room were the lampstand, the table, and the consecrated bread. This was called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a room called the most holy place, which had the golden altar of incense and the, and the gold-covered Ark of the Covenant. The Ark contained the gold jar of manna, Adam's staff, which had budded, and believe, I believe that that's the only place in all of Scripture where we hear of Aaron's staff, which had budded to being in the Ark of the Covenant, uh, and the stone tablets of the covenant. Above the ark were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the atonement cover. But we cannot discuss these things in detail now. When everything had been arranged like this, the priests entered, this is a word I can't say, regularly, on a regular basis into the outer room to carry on their ministry. But only the high priest entered the inner room, and that only once a year, and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins of the people, or the, the sins that people had committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still standing. This is an illustration for the present time, meaning the ongoing sacrificial system that the Hebrews are trying to go back to. There's some concern, there's some debate within the, uh, within the theological translators as to what for the present time means, indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. They are only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, external regulations applying until the time of the new order. When Christ came as high priest of the good things that are already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made. That is to say, not a part of this creation. 
He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean, who are ceremonially unclean, sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Now that he has died and uh, now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. In the case of a will, this is a, a bit of a strange transition here, but if you have a last will and testament, what the author, they had them then, what the author saying is, the last will and testament doesn't matter until you're dead, and only then is it enforced. So in the case of a will, it is necessary to prove, de- to prove the death of one who made it, because a will is in force only when somebody has died. It never takes effect while the one who made it is living. This is why even the first covenant was not put into effect without blood when Moses had proclaimed every commandment of the law to all the people. He took the blood of calves together with water, scarlet wool, and branches of hyssop and sprinkled uh, sprinkled the scroll and all the people. He, He said, this is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you to keep. In the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tabernacle and everything used in its ceremonies. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. It was necessary then for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these sacrifices, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a a man-made sanctuary that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with the blood that is not his own. Then Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But now he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people, and he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. There's a lot there. That's a five-minute read. I think sometimes, at least for, for theological types, for, for Bible nerds like me, I had this idea that, that people in the sacrificial system, that if they just kept the law, if they kept every letter of the law, they would be saved. And then you get to the New Testament, and you hear what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. You hear what Jesus says about how we're to treat one another. We hear, hear what Jesus says about, about, you know, it would be wise for you to take the, spe- or the boulder out of your own eye before you try to help your neighbor take the speck out of his. You hear what he says about lust and adultery. You hear what he says about uh, cutting off your hand. You hear, you know, if, if your right hand causes you to sin or your eyes gouge him out. And you, like, I don't, I don't think that my understanding of the old sacrificial system was adequate 
I don't think that, 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 that we could really look at it and say, well, if, if I killed a goat or if I brought a spotless lamb to the priest and they slaughtered it and, and offered up sacrifices for me, that, that I would be forgiven? How, how, how could something that didn't sin die to forgive me my sin? And then once a year, the high priest would, would cleanse himself so that he's pure and holy outwardly, according to this passage. And he would go into the inner, the most holy place and offer sacrifice there. They tied a rope around his waist so that if he had not been purified well enough in the, being in the presence of God, he'd die. So that was the way to pull him out. And then once a year, according to some of the rabbinic teaching, once a year when the high priest came out, only one time a year was God's name uttered that he would come out of the most holy place and he would stand before all the people and utter the name of God, Yahweh. It's the only time they were ever allowed to use it. If you look in the, in the Old Testament, you read it, and it says, it will always say in small caps, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord. That's when God's name shows up. But it was the name that shall not be spoken because it was so holy and it carried so much power. But if you read, when you read the New Testament and the New Testament looks back at the old, some of the confusing passages of the old, we're not sure how God wants us to see them. That Melchizedek passage is an easy example. But we read from, from the authors of the New Testament, when they look back to the old, if we believe that it's inspired, and I do, then, then God is saying, this is how I want you to see that, that. This is how I want you to see the faith of that person. This is how I want you to see why we left the genealogy out of Melchizedek's life. The same is true with the temple. We find out through the author of the, uh, of the book of Hebrews that the sacrificial system didn't actually forgive people. It didn't actually make them right with God. It was a, it was, it was a sign, a seal, a copy. It was a type of what is true. That yes, something else must die for your sins to be forgiven. There is no forgiveness without blood. But those other things, as it says right here, were temporary at best, and they cleansed outwardly, but they didn't change the heart. In fact, this author will go so far as to say that, that the people who sinned under the old covenant did not even know they were sinning most of the time. It, they, they, it was because of their ignorance. So their conscience can never be cleaned. When Jesus interacts, if you think about it, when he interacts with people like the, the man who was born blind, you remember what he says to him after he heals him? He says, go show yourself to the priests. And then they started accusing him and his parents. Well, who sinned that he was born blind to begin with? We see this with the 10 lepers. And only, only one comes back to thank Jesus, but he sends them off to be cleansed because the, the outward appearance in order to be reconnected with their culture, to be, to be part of the people, to be, to be healed not only in body, but also in relationship, they had to be declared clean. But when you think about the, the, the foot washing and the, and the ways people had to prepare themselves before they meet God, it was an outward understanding of humbling yourself before the Lord. But when the day of atonement came, when the, 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 a goat was slaughtered and the blood was taken from the goat and put on the second goat, because they chose it by lots, they put on the second goat, that was the, the priest confessed all the sins of the people. And then they sent that goat out into the wilderness. It was what's known as a scapegoat. So the sins of the, the, the death 
that the people deserve is represented by the death of the goat. And then the, all of their blood, uh, the blood is taken and then it's put on, the, the priest takes the blood, puts it on his hands and puts it, places it on the head of the scapegoat and then confesses the sins of all the people and sends it off into the wilderness. It's a great visual reminder that God has sent our sins away as far as the east is from the west. It's, but it's a visual reminder of the promise that God is going to fulfill in the true scapegoat, the one sacrificial lamb, the one who didn't offer blood of heifers and calves, but offered his own. And when he died on the cross, you may not know this, but he died in the very same place that God had done other major things, where Melchizedek blessed Abraham, where Abraham offered up Isaac. And remember what, what the angel of the Lord said to Abraham when he was about to sacrifice his son? Now that I know that you love God, that you fear God, do not lay a hand on the boy. And he gave him a ram, a scapegoat, as a substitute offering instead of asking his son. Now that I, God will not, now that you have not withheld your son from me, your only son whom you love, I will not ask you to do it. And then David, the king, whose throne Jesus would sit on as the prophet, the priest, and the king, David had sinned against God by counting his people. And the angel of the Lord came to, to the angel of death came and was wiping out the people. And David stood up at that same spot, the threshing floor of Arun of the Jebusite. And he cried out, Lord, I, I paraphrase, but Lord, it's not their sin, it's mine. Take me, not them. All of this stuff points toward what happens when Jesus is hanging on the cross. When he says, forgive them, they don't know what they do. Father, it's their sin, not mine. Take me, not them. God did not withhold his son from us, his only son, whom he loved. He made him the scapegoat. He made him the sacrificial lamb. He made him the sacrifice once for all. Not just so that outwardly we look better. Not just so outwardly our people, other Christians, other people of God can interact with us without feeling like they're being defiled. But more than that, it's so that our hearts are changed, our consciences are clear, and our sins are actually forgiven. Not just a, an outward appearance of what's to come our sins being forgiven, but our sins are actually forgiven. Not once. You are forgiven. You have been forgiven. And you are in the, pro the present and ongoing state of having been forgiven. You will always be forgiven. If you have forgiveness, forgiveness is yours. Now, the temptation there is, well, if God has to forgive me, I can do whatever I want. But that would be, as he says in the next chapter, that would be like trampling the body of Christ under your feet. He wants us to recognize that the God of the universe actually chose to die so I won't have to, eternally speaking. It says here, for a man is destined to die once and then face judgment. And if you're one of those people that likes to think about you've had past lives and all that kind of stuff, you can believe that, but it's not biblical. You will indeed face your maker one day. And when you do, 
You cannot, you will not, I promise you, you will not, because you won't have pride at that point. You'll face your maker for judgment. And you will not say, look what I have done. What you will do is fall on your knees and confess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior one more time. You could, if you have that little, um, I don't know what the word is, sassiness. Why should I let you in? I don't think God will ask that because you'll already know. But why should I let you in? My name's in the book. But the fact that it's in the book, the Lamb's book of life, says that you are saved. You are forgiven. That is why Jesus came. To reconcile, to make, to make you and I right with the holy of holies, with the God of the universe. And when we die, physical death, if Jesus doesn't come back before then, we cross through the curtain that was torn. We cross through from the outer court where regular people can be to the holy place where the priesthood can be daily to the most holy place, the presence of God you and me will be able to stand in the throne room of God and truly worship, truly say, you are God, I am not. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Worthy is the Lamb to have been who is being and who will always be being slain. He's not sacrificing over and over and over again. He's done it once. He's done it once so that you always have access to the most holy place, to the one true God, to the holy of holies, to the king of the universe, to the creator of all things. And you and I get to know, to be absolutely assured that we indeed, our consciences are clear because the God of the universe walked among us. He spoke to us. He taught us. And now he is, we're told, the mediator of, of this new covenant. And if you don't, if you, we don't use that word very often. It's usually in a legal sense. But back then, if there was a property dispute, a trusted person from the community would be asked to help settle the dispute, to mediate between this person and this person. And sometimes we confuse it with mitigate, like we want to lessen the, the, the consequence of what's going to come instead of aggravate, which would be to worsen the consequences of what's to come. You hear in the legal setting, you hear, oh, well, there were mitigating circumstances, which means this person probably acted poorly, but there was a bunch of stuff that led him to it. Or there are aggravating circumstances. Well, it might not have been as bad as we think, but if you really think of what those motive was, it was pretty bad. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the fact that the God of the universe, the second person of the Trinity, who walked this earth, who sent his Holy Spirit to, to cleanse our conscience, to whisper, the the, to be the still, quiet voice of God, to show us what is right and wrong, to remind us of everything that Jesus taught us. He sent him, him here so that the Son, he said it would be better if he were to go to the Father. He sent the Holy Spirit so that we all have the presence of God. But then he stands in the throne room of God advocating on our behalf perpetually. So when you get greedy or when you get angry or when you get hangry, when someone, bless them, cuts you off in traffic, when you're on 196 and that last person is trying to get in before everybody else and you're like, bless you, my Lord, bless you. The Lord bless you. That's a southern thing. 
It means you're kind of crazy. Bless your heart. We say it, but every time I am not the person that God wants me to be, the second person of the Trinity, the God who walked the earth as a human for 33 years, stands in the throne room and says, remember what I've done. It's for that temper. It's for that greed. It's for that lust. I'm not pointing at anyone in particular. It's for him and for her that I died. And I don't think the Father needs convincing, but we're told that he is our mediator. That means that he is always advocating for our salvation. And because he's eternal and he only does the will of the Father, he's always advocating for that which can never be taken away. It's one of the beauties of the, the Reformed tradition. Unconditional election. It cannot be taken away. You can't mess it up so bad that you're done. Why? How am I sure? Even though the author of Hebrews in Hebrews 6 kind of goes, eh. Because he tells us, the same author tells us, that the one who was the true sacrifice, the once for all time, if you've received for yourself that which God has offered, that same scapegoat, that same sacrificial lamb, that same high priest that will be the high priest forever, that same king that will sit on the throne forever, the one who will come back as the Lion of Judah, he is always in the throne room of God, always mediating on your behalf, always advocating for you, always interceding on your behalf. The second person of the Trinity prays for you continually. So what are we afraid of? What is it that can separate us from that kind of love? Nothing. There is nothing. There is nothing that happens to us if the world goes crazy and they start doing to us what they did to the disciples to, who became apostles and the early Christians. We have nothing to fear. In the earthly sense, yeah, there might be pain. But even in the midst of that, Jesus, our king, our prophet, our priest, will give us what we need to make sure that the salvation he earned on our behalf, the ransom that he paid to free us from the tyranny of the devil, he will make sure that we have what we need so that our salvation is secure. Because otherwise, he died for nothing. And folks, there are hundreds of thousands of people even in this area, there are tens of thousands of people that are not forgiven but may think they don't need to be. Just as in the, in, in the book of Hebrew time, Hebrews, there were people, friends, family members that were still counting on the outward sacrificial system that doesn't actually change the heart. And if we know we're forgiven once for all, that we have the high priest, the prophet, the king, the king that is above all kings. The, one, the name who, at, 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 at the sound of the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. If we know we have that, if I'm a Hebrew Christian and I'm trying to go back to that stuff, I shouldn't be trying to go back to that stuff. I should be trying to draw those who are counting on something that cannot provide that which they want from it. I should be calling them to what will provide that which they seek. The presence of God, the intimacy 
with God, a connection with God, and the forgiveness, the grace and mercy of God. Shouldn't the same be true of us? Not in an overbearing way, not in a, 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 a shame-filled way, but shouldn't we be looking for opportunity for those who think that I'm a good person, I'm in? When the scripture says no one is good, not even one, no one seeks God, not even one, shouldn't we be considering that if we have forgiveness, if we have salvation, if we are assured of that and we know that he mediates on our behalf on a daily basis from now until we're with him, and maybe even then, shouldn't we be concerned about the person that's going to hell and doesn't know it? See, they think we're just judgmental people. Actually, we're people that are avoiding judgment because of the person of Jesus Christ. My judgment was put on him. Am I not eternally grateful for that? Am I not con- should I not consider, the f- the, if that's a fact, and according to the scriptures, it is, should that not motivate me to be fearless, to be confident and calm when the world's in turmoil? He is better than religion. He is better than the sacrifice of animals. He is better than what I want for my life. He knows better than I do because he's the one who mediates for me when I'm doing what I want instead of what he wants. You are forgiven. We'll talk more about that next week. And you are the agent of that forgiveness to other people. And how we live and behave toward those other people is the greatest testimony we have. How are we doing? Let's pray. Bless you, Lord our God, King of the universe. Thank you for what you've done for us. Thank you that you're still doing it for us. And thank you that we never have to fear meeting you in person because your son took our judgment on him. Our name's in the book. We're adopted as your family members. And we'd seek to be in your presence, even though we don't really know what that means yet. But Lord, please assure all of us that there will be a day when we are in the Holy of Holies, the real one. Then we will see things clearly. We pray this in the name of Jesus, through the power of your spirit, for the glory of God our Father. Amen.